for those of you on the inside on the on the podcast, uh, we actually have a producer. Now you don't see or hear, which is probably good. <laughs> but <laughs> but she she is doing some really excellent work. So we she, she did so well on this episode. We're gonna actually going to split this into two. So you're going to get a bonus episode this week, uh, and look out for that. This week's topics include. Orsted uh, buys out New Jersey's PSEG for Ocean Wind One in the U.S. Atlantic, and Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy puts together a plan of how to get American offshore wind and onshore wind rolling. On the heels of that, something we've been talking about kind of regularly over the last few months of the Jones Act and some of the other things that the the U.S. needs to get in shape uh, for making these offshore goals happen is we talk about this American Offshore Worker Fairness Act. That's a bipartisan act. Try to close up some loopholes uh, to ensure that the people going offshore uh, do have American passports. And Phil Totero uh, from Store joins us for this episode. So it's nice to have Phil back on the podcast. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. All right, some big news out of New Jersey. Uh, Danish developer Orsted, who we know well, has signed uh, a deal with U.S. energy company PSENG, PSENG, Public Service Enterprise Groups, uh, which was my power provider when I lived in New Jersey. Uh, so they're, they're buying the 25% stake PSENG has had in the 1.1 gigawatt Ocean Wind 1 project off the coast of New Jersey. Uh, Orsted will now own 100% of that project once this transaction is complete. Uh, PGS uh, EG's chief commercial officer, Lathrop Craig, said that it had become clear that it was better for his group to step aside and allow, quote, better positioned investor to join the product so that it can proceed with an optimized tax structure. That's a very weird language. Uh, but Ocean One is, was, is still planning to use GE Halley 8X 12 megawatt wind turbines that have run into patent issues with Siemens Gamesa. So we have Phil Tataro from Intelstore back on the program because uh, he has some interesting insights into this. And, I, I, and it really gets down into who's a good investor, who's not a good investor, and the effect some of these patent disputes are having on the industry. Phil, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. So what's what's some of the background between uh, Orsted, PS, EG, uh, and, and the GE wind turbines? Uh, what What's driving some of this now after this project is was essentially underway? It's an interesting question, Alan, because the PSEG about um, three or four months ago, at the beginning of November last year, publicly stated that they were they had not yet made a final investment decision on the project and that they were going to reevaluate their uh, involvement. And their CEO uh, publicly came out and said that, you know, there there are legitimate concerns on their part um, to participation in such a, 
a large-scale project, not only phase one, but there's an additional phase two, which I believe is another like 1.2 to 1.4 um, gigawatts as well uh, that, that has been planned for ocean wind. Uh, so is there something in particular related to uh, PSEG, keeping in mind that this company has been involved in renewable energy for a while, they are uh, owners of four solar parks, um, they're also power off-takers from uh, some of the renewable energy that's already generated in uh, the state of New Jersey, and I think a little bit from, from Maryland as well. Um, so there's, you know, is it really a capital allocation issue that they're, they're running into, or, or was it something else? So publicly, what they've obviously come out and said is, you know, we, we feel that there's other companies that would be better positioned from a tax equity standpoint. I don't know that that's necessarily true or not, but obviously this is a decision that they've taken, um, you know, at least, again, what they're saying publicly. Privately, what I can convey to you is that there have been a lot of internal discussions amongst um, not just PSEG, but a number of developers who were contemplating utilizing the GE Halyard wind turbine for their offshore wind projects in uh, some of these uh, places in the New York Bight, um, you know, North and South Carolina, um, Virginia, etc. You know, different uh, different places up and down the, the Eastern Seaboard, uh, where there were big plans for. Um, that, that GE turbine to be utilized, they had something like uh, an additional 10.8 uh, gigawatts worth of uh, non-firm orders, but basically, you know, preferred supplier agreements had been signed, even if it hadn't been publicly announced, um, according to our data at, at Intel Store. Um, and so this is a this is an interesting. Uh, kind of turn of events for PSEG to, to pull out after having also kind of publicly acknowledged uh, a bit of the embarrassment of being involved in a project that, that ran into these kind of patent issues as well. Um, so, it, you know, it turns out there are indeed consequences sometimes to, you know, a, a patent infringement litigation. So do you think that, um, okay, as, as part of the due diligence activities, right, if they're going to be a part of the whoever invests in it and whoever brings it on, in their due diligence activities, are they digging that far? Like, is that what the when you say public embarrassment? My thought is, is that did their engineering group not do their their homework on on what's actually going on there? Or you know what? It's not just them as a prospective investor. The the wider issue that I've been banging on about Joel for for the last thirteen years in the industry is that nobody makes it a point to do. You know, when you think about the scope of, of what's involved in like a financial due diligence for a renewable energy project, especially like a 1.1 gigawatt offshore project like Ocean Wind One, you think about all the technical requirements that need to be met, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's intellectual property risk, which is just as big of a commercial risk to mm -hmm, a lot of companies, mm -hmm. more so than they, they are willing to acknowledge and realize. But it's one or two little line items in, in a you know, turbine supply contract that says there will be partial indemnity provided for, you know, the the project developer and subsequent asset owner, um, you know, from the OEM for for patent infringement liabilities, you know, and, and basically these big multinational corporations don't have anything like patent insurance 
um, you know, such things technically exist, but they, they aren't widely utilized, uh, certainly not in renewable energy. And the, the bigger question is, well, why, when we're going to all this trouble doing all this financial due diligence, do we not take more time to look through intellectual property risk as a legitimate technical and commercial risk in the same way that you do with designs, with, you know, financeability, with, you know, all these other considerations that, that go into a, an FID. Yeah, makes sense. So is the driver then, if I have made a contract with GE for these turbines, right, and I'm PSEG, and I'm looking at this, I'm going, oh boy, I'm not sure when, I'm, I'm sure I have to pay GE to start making the turbines. I'm not sure when I'm going to receive them. They may have to do a rework, redesign. There's castings involved. It's a complicated patent dispute. So it's sort of deep down in the turbine. Does that then just say, hey, I got a better use of those funds? Is that what it ultimately comes down to is that the financial people step in and say, I have say a hundred million tied up in this. I could put that towards a solar farm tomorrow. And, and we're out? Is that where it goes? Yes and no. I, and so I want to get back to this specific issue with Ocean Wind 1, which is right. they already had been granted a carve-out by the judge uh, in this patent dispute for oh, I, the I, GE. I thought it was just Vineyard. I thought there was only two projects no. that had that. Was this one of them? This was one of them. There were, okay. there were these two. This was the other okay. one. Okay. So just again, that's a good question, though, because to, to clarify, originally, the judge was only going to grant the, the concession um, and the exemption to the injunction uh, for Vineyard. And then, right. you know, the GE got involved. They got the state attorney general in New Jersey to um, to actually write a letter of support to the judge and and. Um, you know, they're basically asking for a carve out for Ocean Wind One since the, the turbine supply contract had already been signed. The bigger point, though, is and it goes back to the question, well, why would PSEG reconsider? They had plans, obviously, to invest in phase two and also to be able to utilize, you know, specific um, technologies and capabilities here. They were trying sure. to do things to attract investment to the state of New Jersey for, you know, different factories that were going to be built for, right. you know, subcomponent supply chain. Um, they could even theoretically have gotten GE um, to have made a commitment to, to build some nacelles in New Jersey um, sure. and do some of the, the assembly uh, there. And so the point is that now... With Ocean Wind 1 and Vineyard being the only two projects out of, again, more than 11 gigawatts worth of, you know, firm like order book yeah. and um, preferred supplier agreements that, that were signed, you're talking about, you know, it's a small percentage of the overall um, pipeline that GE was anticipating, and now they can't sell the turbines that they have. It's funny because, you know, Siemens made the argument, oh, they can sell the 6 megawatt uh, you know, version of, of the Halyard turbine, but, you know, everybody already knows that that's an uncompetitive product. That's why GE right. stopped manufacturing it after they bought it from, from Alstom. And right. they were only deploying it, you know, obviously it went into Block Island, but they were only deploying it in France because that was the commitment that they had already made to the French government for the jobs and the manufacturing, right. et cetera, et cetera, yes. that, that was happening over there. 
So when you also consider that GE's 16 megawatt plus designs, uh, you know, anything bigger than the 12 megawatt basically was all based on derivative designs and technology from the Heliot X 12 megawatt turbine design. They're, they're kind of stuck right now with being able to sell anything uh, for off for these offshore projects. So my point going back to you know what I was suggesting earlier, <laughs> there are a lot of developers in the background since the injunction happened about six or seven months ago. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of developers in the background that are scrambling around right now trying to figure out alternative turbine supply if they had been intending to work with GE. And beyond that, they're also considering what I just mentioned with, with PSEG and, and New Jersey. They want, you know, domestic production. They want local jobs. They want a tax base to be created. There, there's a lot of ancillary things that are tied into, you know, a project going forward. And so for this, for any one company not to be able to sell their products and services is, is a bit of a disaster for just the whole industry, not just not just GE. New Jersey has been very proactive, though, in terms of the state itself. Uh, the governor has been aggressively trying to set up the seaports and getting all the land cleared and doing the things that New York State has been un- unable to do in Massachusetts on some levels also. Uh, but New Jersey seems to be going full steam ahead. Was that trying to help PSCG stabilize this a little bit? There had to be rumors going around about it for the last couple of months. And, and I know New Jersey in the last six weeks has put out, I've seen news articles about it, how, how aggressive they are in working with local townships and trying to push through some of these wind um, infrastructure pieces. So what, is, what does New Jersey do now? No, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And also keep in mind that they were, and I believe still are planning to use a, um, a thermal plant um, that PSEG was running or is still running. I, I'm not sure if it's still operational or not, but um, they're intending to use the thermal plant uh, grid interconnection to tie in to the offshore wind park, Ocean Wind That's One, right. and, and any subsequent um, projects. So uh, the point is PSEG was supposed to be intrinsically tied into this whole project. They're still going to be, you know, a, a, in an ancillary way. Uh, tied right. into the project, just not as a co-investor. Um, which again, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to take it at face value that there were probably certain financial considerations that went into this. And I'm not trying to suggest that the patent dispute was the only reason they decided to pull oh, out. Oh, sure, or no, no, no. But it's a contributor, and yeah. it, it's it doesn't get talked about a lot because the industry, for more than a decade, has just wanted to try to gloss over. A lot of these issues, but there there have been you know huge patent disputes that have cost companies billions of dollars. Companies have left the industry as a result of patent disputes um, in the past, and it's it's something that really you know we all need to be able to work together to attract investment to renewable energy in general and wind energy in particular. You're now seeing a situation where a U.S.-based company is pulling out of yet another U.S. offshore wind project, leaving. I don't even know what's left for uh, other than Invenergy, which is technically, you know, majority owned by a, a Canadian, Canadian company. Uh, I, I don't know that you have very much U.S. Dominion? investment and U.S. involvement. Like Dominion's the only one. Uh, uh, yeah, Dominion. You're right. I, I mean, 
and and it's it's a bit confounding. Obviously, we in the United States we need to be able to rely on European expertise because they built you know forty gigawatts and and have you know well built twenty five gigawatts and have a total of forty in their pipeline right now plus China which has a lot more. Um, but the point is they have the experience. We need to be able to leverage that. But where are all the enthusiastic, you know, U.S. corporations, utility companies, investors that are, you know, lining up to get behind offshore wind energy? Yeah, it's 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 too it's too risky. Like even even look yeah, at this as like uh, I can't remember what the exact number was. For some reason, there's a value of twenty three million dollars and six hundred in my head, but I think that's what it was costing for Vineyard Wind. But it was X amount per megawatt that the judge was. It wasn't just you you're allowed to use these. It was there was also a cost to it. So. That cost is minimal, to be honest, in the grand yeah. scheme of this project. This project's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars, right? But there's still 25% of that fee that they've got to pay rate. They'd have to pay rate like that, anyways. You know, and in, and in the other side mm -hmm. of it, I look at this, and yeah. again, I, get, I say the grand scheme of things. Orsted knows what they're doing: operations, maintenance, construction, TFA-wise, like to get this thing going. Yes. And and PSEG has no clue. Besides being the guys on shore holding a flag, going, "Here's where the interconnect is," they don't have any business doing this. Yeah. So yeah. there's risk there well, too. Well, and this right. also rise, ties into a bunch of other things. Well, yeah, Joel, you you nailed it on the head, which is the IRA bill. There's a lot of incentives about American this, American that, setting up. Uh, job programs, setting up all the onshore piece to the offshore, in which I'm sure PSEG was in, tied into doing. That's and that's I think it's why the discussion about the tax structure comes in because they're the American company. They can they can do those things that probably Orsted probably doesn't want to do or would have more difficult time doing because they're just not established like PSEG is. So that that kind of goes away, though. I mean, if longer these projects kind of hang around and get difficult, why is PSCG involved in it? And, and we're seeing that sort of play out throughout up and down the East Coast at the moment, weirdly enough, which is frustrating yeah. to, to say. I still, I still, you know, of this 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 article, the thing that we still haven't completely sorted out here is that statement of so that it can proceed with an optimized tax structure. It doesn't make sense to me that 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 that, that they would Same. leave, and the optimized tax structure would help. You would think that you would want more involvement from an American company. Guys, I'm, I'm going to roll over to Siemens Gamesa. So, see if you if you're all watching LinkedIn this week, Siemens Gamesa put out that big plan about American wind energy. It's called the sorry, it's called the Siemens Gamesa scaling up the American wind industry plan. And it lays out what Siemens Gamesa sees as the road for for U.S. wind. Now, I think this sort of plays into some of the difficulty that everybody is having. And as an OEM, uh, they, I'm sure Siemens Gamesa sees it every day. But I'll give you the, the, the bullet points. I'll try to summarize a little bit because they're kind of long. But uh, first one, provide expedient clarification on U.S. tax incentive programs to get developers and manufacturers the flexibility to become eligible and promote wind energy deployment consistent with statutory requirements and objectives. This has to do directly with the IRA bill and the tax rules that are not defined by the IRS yet and the Treasury Department not defined. So if you're PSE and G or PSEG and you don't have those tax rules out laid out in front of you, all this is just... Yeah. ephemeral it's not real yet 
And Siemens just pointed that out. So the, the other piece of what Siemens's plan was acknowledge the impacts of long duration between the auction results and when the project's going to kick off and that inflation is going to happen in between there and having some compensation mechanisms, maybe refunding some of the auction fee. Uh, it seems like to where that was going. Connecting communities across the country to employment opportunities, provide public support for workforce development programs, maximize clean energy development uh, deployment over the next 10 years by streamlining the permitting process, which again is a federal government issue, and then incentivize the construction of transmission infrastructure to bring new and pending wind energy capacity online, which is uh, why PSEG was involved in this project to begin with, like Phil pointed out. So I think some of the things that everybody is seeing are what also Siemens Gamesa is bringing to the table in this roadmap. It's odd that American Clean Power didn't raise this, but Siemens had to do it. What is happening at the moment? Is this, Are we just not clicking on all cylinders yet or firing on all cylinders? Are we, are we just disconnected? Are we in a pause period waiting for tax rules to come out? What What is what's happening? Well, the, the three things there, right? Tax rules. Uh, the workforce in development engagement and getting the trans and getting things uh, on trans transmission line projects moving to get it to get it all connected right that's the that's what it boils right. down to yeah and and all Just, those things yeah, are, are issues they're, they're not issues that are only specific to the IRA bill and clean energy those are issues that we have uh, as a problem from a government standpoint in the US across the board does that get to Phil's point of there's not a lot of American investment in American offshore wind? And there is that isn't why? in American American offshore wind, but there's I, investors like certainty, and investors like low risk and high margin, right. and those are things that you're not quite to, again to Joel's point. There's still a lot of risk associated with certain aspects, particularly of offshore wind, um, but even addressing the onshore issue. You know, there's been a disconnect in the past decade between what's going on in your local municipalities and even at the state level versus federal policy. And we've long tried as a country to get with, you know, ACP and his predecessors to get some type of federal policy put in place um, that would provide, you know, long term PTC guarantees and um, you know, renewable energy portfolio standards, et cetera, et cetera. All these, all these lovely things that, you know, in, in a bit of a piecemeal way, the, the IRA has, has attempted to do. True. However, the disconnect between federal government and federal policy and state and local municipalities is there are, you know, in Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, Iowa, you have local townships and and counties that are banning wind energy development in in those townships, yeah, um, and yeah. counties and and from that perspective, and this goes back to my comment, you know, a decade ago, the predecessor to ACP was doing a lot of grassroots work, you know, working with people at the state level. Right. In the past decade, there's been a shift towards let's focus on federal policy, and sure. and they've had several federal policy wins, you could say. But what's the point of a federal policy if we can't execute right. it by going and getting steel in the ground because these local municipalities mm -hmm. have banned wind energy development? Right. So 
I think there's a, a need to get back to some of the grassroots, uh, and that's one part of it. Um, although Siemens, going back to this, the whole point about the, the Siemens Gamesa roadmap, they don't explicitly talk about that. But one of the things that is an enabler to, you know, more, um, you know, like, or addressing the question of why did Siemens write this roadmap and not ACP or not in conjunction with ACP is they, Siemens Gamesa has had a specific issue where they've been losing market share to Nordex. Um, in the past few years, because you know you've got companies that routinely just buy um, you know GE Investus turbines, and then there's all the other deals that are maybe less favorable project sites where Siemens Gamesa and Nordex have had to kind of scrap it out against each other, and Nordex has been winning lately, and Nordex has been mm. doing that because they've been undercutting Siemens on price. So Siemens is kind of looking at this where hey we've got this whole factory that we put in place in, in Kansas, uh, nacelle factory, you know, we've got blade factories throughout the Midwest and Iowa, et cetera, as well. Right. We're, yep. we're having to, you know, stall and shutter these factories. Although now they're, they're talking about reopening them because they've gotten some orders. Um, but you know, they're, they're trying to motivate everybody that's a stakeholder in, in, with this roadmap, they're trying to motivate everybody, um, right. to, you know, get the industry reinvigorated so that they can, you know, do what they're trying to do, reopen their factories, create the, the jobs, create the tax base, et cetera, et cetera, all these things that everybody claims they want. So I, I, going back to my point as well about all these townships that are banning wind energy, the reason that, frankly, a lot of that's happening is it's not just NIMBYs and, and disinformation that, that's, you know, which has certainly been prevalent. You're also talking about, like, if, if it's getting cheaper and cheaper, to build projects and you know project capex has gone down it's bounced back up a little bit off the bottom um you know corresponding with ppa prices and you know commodity costs and, and input costs for turbines and whatnot uh but you know if if it's getting cheaper and cheaper they're not offering as much in the way of uh, easements and lease payments Locals, to, yeah. um, landowners they're not offering as much commercial That's incentive right. to the right. local communities um, you know, these are all things that the project developers need to be able to do to smooth things over because, you know, if your neighbor is getting five grand a month and your, their wind turbine that's on their land has got shadow flicker onto your property, you're going to be upset about it if you're not getting five grand a month. But if you are, then guess what? You know, that, that five grand a month goes a long way to easing your, you know, <laughs> discomfort over your shadow seizures flicker and, and right. you know, noise and, and acoustic emissions. <laughs> yeah, supposedly. So, you know, it's, it's amazing. I guess it's amazing what money does, but, uh, you know, that, so there's, that, that's a very long winded explanation of, of some of the things that are, that are kind of transpiring at this point, but there, there are definitely, I mean, for Siemens Gamesa to feel like they have to come out with their own roadmap, that the ACP wasn't a part of, there's there's got to mm. be some kind of a disconnect there between these these you know one of the top three OEMs in this country and the supposedly the leading you know champion of the industry in in terms of a lobby group in in the United States as well. So it it just kind of feels like they're everybody's not quite aligned on the same. 
on the same path. You can expect to see a large a large point. presence of the two of them in Orlando uh, at the ACP O&M conference here coming up in March because that's where the majority of the Siemens uh, team is. So, so maybe we'll see some some communication there. Of that's course. Right. You know, I was thinking about this. Yeah, yeah maybe some fireworks. Huh? Exciting. Um, <laughs> you know, Alan, a, a few months <laughs> back we talked about uh, it was a federal effort to install basically 80,000 new IRS agents. Yes, eighty-seven thousand. So I think 000. I think at that maybe that's why I'm saying eighty because I think I remember the comment where I was like maybe they should just take seven thousand of them and help them move that that effort into permitting, like permitting for transmission lines, permitting for other energy projects. Like just because every, everybody talks about it, whether you're onshore or you're offshore or wherever. And this is one of the things from the Siemens plan is is just getting these projects. Like there's so many things in the queue to hook up to the grid that there's not enough time and and uh, in, in the day to get them all moving. So, I mean, that's a big problem that Siemens is pointing out. ACP has pointed that as out and maybe not in the same capacity, but has as well. It's something that we need to address as a, as a industry or that's not an industry problem. That's a government problem, I guess. Well, it's, it's a government problem, which has become an industry problem. Yeah. That's, that's the real issue. Mm-hmm. And until um, some of these items get closed and I don't see closure coming in the next six months to a year, it's going to be a big pain point, and I, I I expect GE and Vestas and others to to chime in on this with probably similar looking plans, and that's good. At least we understand where they're coming from. I'd like to see more more effort from some of these larger groups in the workforce development as well, because it, from you know being in the industry as as as, I, as we all are, you hear it from every corner. We can't find enough people. We can't find enough people now. So you're say say you're working yeah. blades, right? You got to find someone that is competent and trained and understands composites and all this stuff. And then you also have to have that exact same person and the ability to work on ropes or at heights and away from their families. And so like, it's hard to find those specific people. Um, but if you can, if we can start training them, if we can start injecting some, you know, into some STEM programs at, at young ages or into some, some of the, you know, it's going to have to be from the high schools and on up um, to get these things moving because just trying to repurpose and switch people into different industries, it's, it's a tough industry to get into because of the travel and the, you know, away time away from home. And, and not everybody has a wind farm out their backyard where they can just drive to work every day and, and work at it, you know? Yeah. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. All right, so the American Offshore Workers Fairness Act uh, has been uh, banging around Congress uh, since uh, last year. Right, and so the legislation is sponsored by uh, Louisiana Republican Garrett Graves and California Democrat John Garamendi uh, that would quote unquote close a loophole. And I, I don't like that language, but I'm, I'm going to just use it for now uh, to close a loophole uh, in offshore wind and oil and gas uh, to use non-U.S. workers. All right. So as you can well imagine, because the offshore wind is happening, and it's going to be a big thing. Uh, th- there would be a push to have U.S. workers involved with that. That 
that seems to be where the administration is going. The Biden administration is going. They, they are constantly putting out press releases about uh, clean, renewable union jobs, middle class workers, training, all that all wrapped into a, a nice package. Right. So and that's where they're going. However, <laughs> uh, let me describe what this what this bill does. So what it does is it on offshore work uh, that you need to have American workers essentially on the on the boats you can't um bring in like you can right now people from all over the world to work on these projects at at lower uh, costs but we're, we're trying to they're trying to force those construction crews to be american-based and obviously use american ships that's the push the the company the, the people that are pushing back from this are american clean power and and, and remarkably um my senator, Ed Markey, is pushing back against this and others. Uh, Jake Oshenklaus, who was also a, a, in Congress from Massachusetts, uh, is pushing back on this uh, bill to, to drive more American content into some of these offshore projects, mostly due to wages. It's what it seems like. Americans are going to get paid more. They don't want to pay more. So it puts the projects at risk. There's a real dichotomy going on here now, guys, where if we're going to train workers, we're going to train workers, but we're not going to use them. Or the, the and one of the arguments being made against this act is, uh, well, it's going to take too long. We need to bring in people from the outside who've done this before, obviously, and they're going to be the ones in charge and Americans are not going to be up to speed fast enough. That's the argument. So you, so you sit on sell. both sides of the bill, right? So the, the the first side of the bill is, say, you yeah. are – which is such an odd mix, a Republican from Louisiana and a Democrat from California working together. Fantastic that it's bipartisan in that way, but really weird uh, in a political realm in the US. So sitting on their side of the table, right? You, it's this is the last kind of – why do they say close a loophole is because it's a small loophole in the Jones Act. The Jones Act actually does say you need to use U.S. people, but you can swap around and kind of fudge it a little bit, right? So so what they're trying to do sure. is they're saying right. like, OK, right. we're going to close that loophole in the Jones Act and we're going to make all of these people be – because we want to create American jobs. You know, Louisiana, tough to come by some jobs there. California, is they had, there's a lot of high-paying jobs there, but there's also quite a high rate of unemployment in, in California as well. Um so it's it's True. it's making sure these people go to work and that you're what all of these things the IRA bill all the stuff that you've you've put in place actually does what it says and creates American jobs and we can all get on board with that. So we sit and we sit in, in, in on that side of the table. Now we switch to the other side of the table, the people fighting against it, which includes the American Clean Power Association. So and and Phil, you like this? This is the connection I'm drawing. So the connection I'm drawing is is that. The American Clean Power Association and the 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 detractors from the bill or the people fighting against it don't believe that if this bill goes into place, we can hit any of our renewable energy targets. They don't believe we can have 30 gigawatts of offshore wind if we say this is what we have to do because the simply the workforce won't be there. You can't train them in time, and they're, they're just not that many people. Um, like in the the example I use is like. The Danish society. So the Danish society is a maritime society. In the U.S., we don't have that 
on any coast. We have a small portions of it, but we don't have it. Like in, in Denmark, there's a lot of there's a lot of young women and men that grow up knowing they're going to be on a vessel, whether it's a fishing vessel, oil and gas, shipping, wherever. You know, like Maersk, one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. Boom, headquarters in Copenhagen. Like that's that's that culture there. So we don't have that maritime culture. So the proponents of the bill are saying, if you put this in place. We won't get the build out. And so why I think that American Clean Power and American Clean Power, don't get mad at me, but why I why it sounds like to me that they're pushing back on it is the fact that the people paying the bills for American Clean Power are the developers and they want to get that 30 in the ground by 2030. So it's at the top end of the thing, the people fighting against this bill that is set to help in a perfect world is set to help working families and the people out there making you know to to make really high paying wages and have good jobs the people that are actually paying the bills for the lobby are the developers and they want to make the money themselves so i think that's where we have the the split and that's why it's a difficult one to kind of stomach because i mean i grew up in the midwest everybody's fighting for good paying jobs and if there was all these 50 60 an hour jobs in my hometown people would be licking their chops for them they're not here they're not going to we're not we're, we're not building 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in Lake Superior. So um, I, I can see why the people on so, you know, some of the people on the coast would be yeah. a little bit salty. But, you know, one of the numbers we've seen is needing 100,000 workers. We're not there's not it's going to be difficult to get 100,000 maritime workers out, out at sea. One of the reasons this also came up was not just to, quote unquote, close a loophole with the Jones Act. It's also in the U.K., there has been a significant amount of pushback on foreign workers being utilized to build a lot of these UK yeah, offshore and you know some of these uh, Congress people and senators have done junkets over over there to the UK and Germany, etc. And they've seen you know how these things are getting built and what's involved in the investment, and they're looking their chops because they see you know tax base, jobs, revenue, you know, etc. That that's going to come into their state, their municipality. Um, now the other, the flip side to this as well is who do you think ends up paying for the higher wages and the higher cost of developing a project? It's yes. us. The consumers. Yeah, sure. And so at the end of the day, you know, we have to be able to take on the, the, the cost burden of, you know, domesticating that much production capacity, that much, you know, industry expertise, construction expertise, et cetera. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, I'm on the, the side of the, the the whole, like, let's ban or overturn the Jones Act, to be perfectly blunt, just to, and to be transparent about it. I understand that we want to be able to build a domestic industry. I don't think we have to have a Jones Act to be able to mandate the fact that we should do it. Yeah, more the, the libertarian stance of let, let, let the markets figure it out. Yeah, that's a good take. I mean, the other side of the equation is if you don't start, you're never going to get there anyway. If you if you don't have American involvement in this, who's going to maintain these things? We got thirty years of maintaining yeah. offshore turbines. The, those crews that install them are going to go to the next project. They're going to be in South Korea. They're going to be in Australia. They're not going to be sitting off the coast of New Jersey all the time. Equinor saw that when we talked to Harriet Green probably a year ago, and she was working with the local state and communities to to build up a workforce and how she described how difficult it was. You should go back and listen to that episode. It's really, it's really good. She's informative. And in the state of Massachusetts, which I can use because I live here, there's there, it's an educational state. We have MIT, Harvard, right? We have all these Northeastern, we have all these engineering schools. 
running around the state. We, we're, it's just the, the high. It's got to be the highest density of schools to population in the country. We can train people in Massachusetts, but we don't. We don't seem to want to turn that on. What we what we appear to do is like, well, we can't do it today, so we should never do it. I don't think that makes a lot of sense here. I'm I'm game if they would ramp it, if they would decide, put on some sort of graduated scale, say, hey, you know, the Jones yep. Act ain't going to work right now, but in 2026, we're going to enforce you the need Jones to hit Act. This. Yeah. Yeah. And right. yeah, something of that sort where it's exactly. like, you yeah. know, at right now, we want you to have X percent. And if you can prove to us that you've tried to get as high as you can, but you're right. only able to find this many workers, then you can move on. Now, there's, of course, people that will fudge that net, so that's a, a different game to play. And there's, right. th- then, then we have to hire more auditors to just chase this stuff down and whatnot. But sure. it, it's, it's, it's just like we say right now, we talk about all the time. It's an energy transition, not an energy step change. Right. So we all well know on this call and our and 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 I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, but we know that hydrocarbons are not going away tomorrow. They're going to be uh, it's going to be a gradual change over and we're going to have to merge into it. It's the same thing with trying to build this offshore uh, workforce, offshore and onshore. Right. Because if we're trying to build one hundred twenty thousand more turbines uh, in the next seven years, we're going to need a lot of people trained up in every corner of the wind producing nation. Which brings up another good point, Joel, because if you look at the countries that have instituted local content uh, provisions, either to qualify for favorable Mm -hmm. um, feed and tariff incentives or some other, some other Mm -hmm. type of like local content regime, the reason that that usually fails, if it fails, the reason it does is because they never back that up with a commitment to the industry to say, is, you know, everybody puts out lofty targets and says they want to build 120,000 turbines or what have you, but do they put the right resources right. in place for that to actually happen? And so there's a difference between having a goal of, you know, 30 gigawatts by 2030 or et cetera. You know, there there are a lot of lofty things that... that um, governments and industry trade groups and the industry itself wants to be able to achieve but you know you you're you're right it's not going to go from 0 to 30 in in a step it's got to it's got to be ramped and and that's why again i will agree and acknowledge that there needs to be a an investment in the training there True. you know there yes. are some universities that have been getting some state grants new yeah. jersey is one of them that that yes. gave some grants uh, massachusetts is another one Rhode Island um, also recently just announced that some local community colleges and technical colleges are getting some grants. So that's a good step. But are they being yeah. trained by people that have experience from yeah. Europe? Because at the end of the day, <laughs> we're still going to have to rely yeah, on, right. on knowledge Europeans who are ahead of us at this point, unless we're going to rely on the, the Chinese, I, which I doubt. But, you know, who else are you going to talk to that's got significant experience in doing this? You know, we're going to have to rely on these people for now until we can figure out how we yeah. can domestically support these kind of, you know, annual goals. Of, I mean, we could we could easily do like 10 to 12 gigawatts a year in offshore, you know, for for, you know, a time frame if we were sufficiently ramped up. So, so there's, there's other places in the world up. we can I mean, not the exact same example, but experience that we can draw from on the U.S. Now, we're not used to being in this position, right? That's a part of the issue, I think, here is the U.S. is not used to being the people that are trying to figure out 
how do we do this and how do we ramp up? We're used to just kind of going and getting it done. But if you look at like switch, switch your vision to uh, some, some of the hydrocarbon industry, like in say in Africa, they were taken advantage of for a long time. So they instituted some pretty heavy laws around local content. But what that some of those laws have done in some of those countries, it's like the pendulum swings, right? So they got taken advantage of here. And then the pendulum swung so far through maybe a middle ground to the other extreme where it's actually stifled their growth by having too much local content laws and too many things in place to stop, you know, because they had there's development that could have went gangbusters there had they allowed some help from the outside to come in. Uh, but they're still trying to catch up because they put too too stringent of laws in place or too too too, too stringent of rules so, in place. Brazil is a good example. Yeah. That. Exactly. And that that's what I mean. So if if we're last and we're pretty close to last in terms of in, in developed countries and putting in wind turbines, maybe we're a little ahead of Australia, not hugely in front of Australia. But <laughs> but uh if if we're having to go up that scale, you know, is, is it such that uh the federal government is going to be an impediment to this, no matter what what happens, and that we should be looking at other. Uh, should we be looking at the the model that Denmark's using, and what France is using, and what the UK is using, and what Japan is using, and to to look at those and go, okay, here's the things that are working, here's the things that are not working, because we had the, the advantage of time. We've been sitting on the sidelines on offshore for for a while. Do we do we now say okay? We're gonna we're gonna steal the best things from all these countries and implement them to speed up the progress, because if, if we did that, I think that would make a lot of sense. But I haven't heard I have heard nothing yeah, like that. If you do that, you end up with um, boats full of people from the APAC region at a hundred bucks a day, because that's what's happening in the well, UK. Well, it right sounds now. like what. Right, and maybe that's if you if your if your goal end goal is to get thirty gigawatts in the ground by twenty thirty, then that's what you're going to have to do as it sits okay. today, right? That's the that's that's what we're staring at. Um, if you, if to get to that goal, but also meet the other bullet points down the list of all the other items that we want, it's not. I don't I don't know if it's a if you build it, they will come situation because if I'm well, someone manning a vessel, I'm, I'm going to grab, if I have the ability to, I'm just going to grab the cheapest people I can find that can get yeah, the job I, done. I think back to Phil's point about you don't want to have increased costs in electricity prices. Massachusetts already has high electricity prices. And this is, this is not a state yeah. that shies away from taxes. It just doesn't. But in this particular case, they are weird. It just seems like, it, like the world is – So is it a massive subsidy? I, I Yeah, maybe. Right? Like say, hey, if, if you're, if you're, if you're going to – if you guys will put a trained American worker on your vessel, we'll refund you 50% of their wages from Biden's pocket? It, well, is that a better spin than what we're doing right now? It may be. Maybe. Maybe. Well, and going back to some of the other discussions here with the IRA and how the tax law hasn't been written – is that what they do, right? Yeah, uh, this is this this happens in many levels of government where the the legislation is very vague, and then you get down to the real rulemaking part, which is usually a committee locked away somewhere inside one of these government agencies, and it outskirts out this policy. You know, like that wasn't what the intent was the law was, but that's the way it goes, right? 
So they're allowed to manipulate it. Should they be manipulating a way, like you're saying, like there's an incentive to put Americans on ships and to train Americans to do some of these jobs. Can the IRS just do that and almost whole cloth in this sense to get the industry kicked off? And what else are they going to do? But that's what they've done with ITC and PTC, right? For since the 90s. Yeah. Well, so maybe they maybe they well, do. Here, I'll give you the good example, uh, and I'll, I'll bring in some names because I think I like these guys. Josh Rangel, Rangel Renewables, right? Those guys are busting their ass yeah. out there fixing wind turbines. Pronto Wind, another one. I mean, there's a there's Joel. You and I know a bunch of these companies are out there. These guys are busting yeah, yeah, their asses yeah, out absolutely. there, right? And they're they're doing the thing the right way, and so they have this American. There's this American component to it, right? Uh, and so when you get to the offshore side, it's like, well, screw it. <laughs> you know, those guys that, at Rangel and Newbulls that are working their asses off and doing the right thing and growing their company the way it, it should be grown and and getting – will have no – are they going to have any opportunity in any of this offshore work? I think the answer is no because they're going to compete against wherever, APEC, uh, workers. It doesn't seem right. Well, so I'll give you, I'll give you so, an example. I'll give you an example that's happening right now. This isn't this is from this year. This knowledge that I have, right? Uh the people working on the blades on Block uh-huh. Island, GEV wind True. power. Yeah. So GEV wind power based in uh, over in Hull in England, mm-hmm. but with a big and massively growing operation in the US has taken some of the the smart uh able contractors that have been working offshore in Europe for a long time. And what they did when they went to Block Island for GE is they intermixed those guys with some of their American people that have been working onshore for a while. And they put them together on teams offshore so that the American side could get a little bit of knowledge of how to work offshore. Mm. And, and yeah. so that is, that's, that's fantastic. That's, a, that's great work. Well, that's what we want yes. to see, but that's tough to do for the whole industry when we're only talking about those five, turbines in on block island right if that's the only training ground we have that's not going to go very far but that's that's that that's a case example right and don't forget too that they've now put new limits on h1b visas meaning that you can't bring uh, a lot of the knowledgeable people from europe or apac over to the u.s anyway unless it's just to provide uh, a certain amount of training to yeah, uh, the locals, right. which I think long term. So, you know, going back to the earlier point, Alan, I, I think, you know, companies like Rangel aren't necessarily going to be able to have a, a place in the market. It's just a question of how quick are they going to be able to get ramped up? I mean, like we've been talking about, if, if you want to have 30 by 2030, where are the training programs that are happening this year that need to prepare the workforce for doing the construction, doing the offshore maintenance. You know, yeah. I, I mean, you need to start the knowledge transfer and the tech transfer now. Yeah. yeah. And I don't 20, see that happening. Right. And, and it's 2023. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like there's some, there's some stuff that transfers, right? You have yeah. like, so if you're up there right now, so this is more not block Island knowledge, right? If you're there and say they want some spot on metal repair, that's a union job. So now mm-hmm. you have union people that have never actually been offshore painting anything that someone's got to, you, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. they, they, they've got to have a painting off of, off of ropes and in the splash zone and all this stuff, but it has to be whatever X, Y, Z union it is to, to be a painter over there. So now you, 
you've you've created a, a, an Americanized job, but you've made it very, very, very difficult to find that person and to get those qualifications and to get that stamp and to pay those union dues and to get mm-hmm. all those guys on board is not it's not simple. It's not basic to do. Well, I go back to Phil's point. The unions that were being involved in some of these offshore products uh, projects, the American unions, are saying they need more time to spool up workers to train them. What have we been doing? You know? 2023. Yeah. We've only got seven years left. <laughs> right. I mean, this is- Which sounds preposterous, but we're still going to be, I mean, when you realize how many qualified workers are necessary for those specific jobs, we're not moving fast enough. No, no. That's the goal. We're definitely not moving fast enough. Right. So have you guys seen an, have you guys seen an announcement that says for 9,200 bucks, you can come to XYZ college and get your one year certificate in this. I haven't seen it. I know they exist. For offshore. I've seen it for onshore. onshore. Not, but not yet. Yeah. Not yet. But even okay, so say that say that that's an announcement that we hear today. That person is still nine months to a year away from having their training certificate yeah. and being a green hand yeah. in and on January nineteenth, twenty twenty four. They'll have a year is, of experience. Might be able to work on their own by January first of twenty twenty five. That's crazy. Well, which also begs the question when when you look at you know, going back to our other conversation, what does this injunction on GE being able to sell their turbines mean for projects being constructed according to their original time schedules? Oh, yeah. You know, are we going to have a situation where we just can't find enough personnel? And if there's, you know, legislation that comes into play that closes the loophole, so to speak, on offshore workers uh, to be in compliance with the Jones Act, then how do we build this stuff by, yeah. you know, start construction in 23, 24, or 25 and have it done by 26, 27, 28? Uh, and there's, yeah. there's no way we keep this timeline. I, there has to be – guys, there has to be a way, right? We, we've seen multiple projects of this scale done in America over the years. Have we just lost our our bearings a little bit? The Are you going back to the the moon landing? Is that what we're going back to? Well, I could pick a whole bunch of them, right? And it's not just that. There's a lot of them. Well, Musk is putting rockets, landing rockets two at a time down in Florida at the moment. Uh, where do you think that came from? Right, that, that came from America. Yeah. Right, that was that wasn't so, the, the the time frames got shortened because you got smarter. Not because it was the project was difficult. Is we applied brain power and a lot of muscle to, to to get some of these in action. It just it just doesn't seem. It, it, there's a lot of the thing kills me is there's a lot. And we're on a podcast, of course. There's a lot of talk, but when you you start scratching the surface around like what's actually happening, you don't see much. You don't see it. I don't see. I, my, I don't see in my state. I know at the, at the lowest level there is some. But in that medial level, like, yeah, we got the port set up, we're ready to take the cells in, we got the blades coming in, we're all getting ganged up, we got these these units involved, and they got guys trained and people ready to go. That's not there. And and so it duplicates what Phil said on timeline problem. Rosemary, you're a business person. Alan, you're a business person. Phil, you're a business person. I'm a business person. When was the last time you put a quote out that said, this quote is good for the next two years? Three years. No, no never. No, no, no. It's never. 30 days, never. 60 days, 90 no. days max before I'm going to change these prices on you. Right. So you have these people that have done the the complete business model in 2022, bid on an auction, paid 
hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. And now they're not going to be able to put steel in the water for two, three years and at inflation at 8% and all these different. So there's so many market factors here at play that you can see why uh, EP. SG or PESG or whatever it was decided to kind of back off, right? <laughs> to say like, man, you know, it's just too many uncertainties here. All yeah. of a sudden, like our business model doesn't make sense anymore. If you, if you want to kill an industry, and I'll, I'll, I'll close it out this way. If you want to kill an industry, have high inflation, have high interest rates, go. which is what's happening right now. And, and it's not just onshore wind, offshore wind. It's pretty much all across American society at the moment. And it, it's going to make doing some of these training initiatives and uh, uh, getting engineers up to speed and, and learning the specifics of offshore wind implemented. It's going to make it even more difficult than it was already. It's it's just a variety of factors, unfortunately, and it's just not solved. And I know we're all sort of griping at one another. That's what podcasts do a little bit, but they do need to be addressed and you feel like there should be some leadership on this issue. And hopefully over the next couple of months, we're going to start to see it. That's the goal. That's going to do it for this week's uptime wind energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to uptime tech news, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the uptime wind energy podcast. 